This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. From MPB Think Radio, this is Creature Comforts, the show all about your animals and the animals around you. I'm Kevin Farrell with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. Our guest today, paleontology curator for the museum, George Phillips. We're going to talk today about how New York has taken an interest in Mississippi's paleontology. We'll also talk about summer pet hazards you should be aware of. What insects should you protect your pets from um, this time of year? Are your pets safe around your pool? And are you leaving your pet in the car when you go to the store? Join the conversation this morning with your comments and questions. The phone number is 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. Or send us an email, animals at mpbonline.org. This is Creature Comforts from MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. Our guest today paleontology curator for the museum, George Phillips. So today we're going to talk about how New York has taken an interest in Mississippi's paleontology. We'll also talk about some summer pet hazards you should be aware of. What insects should you be protecting your pets from at this time of year? Are pets safe around your pool? And what about leaving a pet in your car when you go to the store? You can join our conversation this morning with your questions and comments. Our phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two. 7464, or you can send us an email. It's animals at mpbonline.org. And there's always two chances to hear Creature Comforts each week. It airs Thursday mornings at 9 and repeats Saturday mornings at 6. So good morning. Hope everyone is doing well this morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Libby, now I know we you have a relatively new uh, exhibit uh, at the museum uh, on fear. So tell us about that, how that's going, and then some other things going okay, on. Okay, Goosebumps. Mm-hmm. It's called The Science of Fear, and it's just a very different and a lot of fun, very interactive, a uh, good way to um, for families to interact. You kind of talk about your fears and talk about yourself a little bit, and I think it's great for for parents and children, or parents and or grandchildren, grandparents and grandchildren, to um, start conversations. Mm-hmm. And if if you're like me, I was always looking for a way to find out what my daughter was really up to, what's going on <laughs> in her life, you know, and it, too much of that, what's happening, oh nothing. And uh, it's a good way to get them talking. I've seen a lot of fun interacting going on in there. And then tomorrow, there is a Fun Friday activity. All through June and July, every Friday is Fun Friday. And uh, from 10 to 12, there are demonstrations, investigations, various kinds of craft activities, all having to do with spiders. Oh, it so certainly uh, kind of fun. works yeah. in with the the fear aspect. <laughs> yes, definitely. For for most of us, I guess, a little bit afraid of spiders. 
So we're going to be talking fossils and pets this morning. If you have questions, uh, you can give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring Our phone number is one eight seven seven. 672-7464. You can send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. So, George, good morning. Always good to have you on the program. Good morning. Now, you always uh, do show and tell on the radio, which uh, you do a good job of considering that folks at home really can't see what we're talking about. <laughs> they will see pictures of some of these things on the Facebook page tomorrow, the Museum's right. Facebook page. Very good. Uh, so you brought in a large object, and you were challenging, challenging us to uh, try to, de- to decipher what it is, and I'm going to stick with my guess. It is a big rock. <laughs> it is it's a rock now. It's a tubular object about the size of one's hand. It has um, got grooves all around the edge of it, so it's kind of a longitudinal or elongate thing. It's actually a fragment of it. Um, it's sort of shaped like a truncated basket or cone, but the lower part of the cone is missing. This is an organism or a remnant of an organism, a group of organisms called the rudest clams. They were uh, an aberrant or um, a very odd group, a non-typical group of clams that lived during the Cretaceous period. And there's they're just one of many different types of organisms that became extinct 66 million years ago at the... Uh, Verge of the KPG boundary, uh, which is what we're going to talk about today a little. All right, so help us understand that we're looking at this. What, what, and, and I guess the thing about a fossil is there are other, it's not just the clam, but like Libby said, you could see there's little tiny shells attached there. So right. So I'm an idea of how the cl- what it was like, clam-like. I'm holding up the, uh, the tube, so it's kind of tube-shaped. Uh, we're talking about five and a half, six inches tall. Um, this is the lower valve. Okay. And the point of the cone-shaped valve, the cone-shaped lower valve, was attached to the seafloor. So it was up like, upright like this, and it had a lid-like uh, upper valve. Okay. So it was a bivalve, like a clam or an oyster, where the two parts came together. We call them valves, uh, valve for each part. The upper valve does not preserve. It's made out of a different mineral, but the lower valve is made out of calcium carbonate, and it preserves well in our chalks and limestones in northeastern Mississippi. But uh, these things got really big. Uh, some of them were as large as a um, oh, uh, the ones in Texas, uh, a third the size of this table. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, we found them upwards in Mississippi, upwards of um, a foot, uh, 14 inches in diameter, the top of them. Uh, and they can be about this tall. They can be about a foot and a half tall. Um now, all of these channels, all that was a part of the clam. That's all the tissue structure of the clam. It's a very complex-looking tissue structure, very involved. And the cool things about these clams, when they were living, in, and especially when they died, they provided a substrate or an attachment point for other clams and encrusting organisms. Uh, if you're competing for space on the seafloor, you're wanting to grow on something hard, you can attach to everything is attaching. If it's a, if it's a, a non-mobile organism, it wants to attach to something and you have to attach to something hard. Well, this seafloor was generally a soft seafloor at this time. Uh, so they're looking for hard objects. So they're looking to attach to other things <laughs> that have skeletons. And so that would explain where you can see clearly the, the other little the shells and things on the yes, inside. This is a thorny oyster. Uh, these, this is a little demiad oyster, various other types of oysters uh, and this is part of another rudest clam here that broke off, uh, but this is the main one that's best preserved. Again, they came to a, uh, a point, and if you can envision uh, the horn of plenty or mm-hmm. cornucopia, that's exactly what this type looked like. 
All right, very good, good, good job, George. That's uh, that may I, I certainly see that. And as you said, if uh, folks are interested, they can uh, check out the Facebook page for the museum tomorrow and, and see some pictures. Uh, looks like we have an early caller on the line. So why don't we say good morning to Linda in Arkansas? Good morning, Linda. Good morning. Thank you for talking with me. Sure, go ahead. I have recently uh, rescued a 75-pound dog. They tell me the kennel says he's a a, a lab. He's definitely not a lab. He's golden from his nose all the way to his tail. He's about eight years old. Uh, I found him running along a county road, and we're going to take him to the kennel, kept him for enough days that I fell in love with him, so now he's mine. But uh, my problem is he has dreadful anxiety and abandonment issues. I can't even begin to leave the house without him sitting down by the car. He must go with me. Uh, he follows me around the house continually. Um, he is He's 75 pounds. He's as sweet and loving as he can be, but um, it's, a, it's really changed my life. You know, I, if I leave him in the house, he's <coughs> dreadfully unhappy when I get home. I can't leave him home for more than three hours because he, he, I have to lock him in when I leave him so he won't chase me. Um, it's terribly hot right now. He's a car hound. Any place I go, he wants to stay in the car. And so it sort of cuts into how long I can be in any place, whether it's library, store, friends. Um, I need some help with this. What do I do? Well, that's a great question. That's probably the reason he was on the road to start out with. You know, just, <laughs> that's, just, that's, that's possible, yeah. Right. And uh, this is a dog that probably will benefit from some medication. And uh, there are several approaches to that. There are uh, calming products on the market, uh, which are basically uh, natural. Uh, some of them, one of them is called uh, Composure which makes sense. Uh, it's given on a daily basis. And there's also some calming collars. Now, it sounds like he's got a pretty severe situation going on here. Definitely. definitely. And, uh, I've, never had, I've never had an, I've had lots of dogs, but never one with right, this extreme right. and anxiety. So well. those things might not work. It'd be worth a try to try that. Uh, a lot of dogs respond to generic Prozac and, uh, People say, oh, I don't want to give my dog drugs. But if it enhances or enables you to do some things, it calms him. Certainly, I would uh, talk to your veterinarian about possibly prescribing Prozac uh, as an alternative thing to try to help calm him. Okay. He's eight years old. This is incredible. Yeah, that's what, that's what makes it so difficult. I right. adopted a, a, a very young dog. Uh that had been traumatized, but she was young enough that I could work with her right. and, and, this and is, get this her is, beyond that. This is pretty well ingrained in his psyche, if you will, but I would talk to your vet about using some drugs. There are other drugs as well, but uh, uh, at this point, uh, cost may not be a big issue for you, but uh, generic Prozac is relatively inexpensive and in most cases does a pretty good job of at least calming uh to a certain extent, it'd be interesting to see how this works out. All right, uh, just a quick question. Someone mentioned that he might do better when I leave him home if I had a large dog 
cage to leave him in, not a not an outside kennel, an indoor dog cage. Right. How destructive is he when you leave him at home? Um, not terribly. You know, he he scratched right. uh, a, a door, but but he's not really torn anything up. Right. And I've been gone for as long as like between two and three hours. So. My suggestion would be to try that. Uh, certainly, a kennel may be the answer as far as trying to keep him in a calm place. Uh, uh-huh. On the other hand, some dogs literally will tear a kennel up, which you don't think they could do. But yeah. I have seen these heavy-duty uh, uh, crates that have been torn up by dogs. So it'd be He's worth a, a try. <laughs> it'd be worth a try to see. Good luck okay. to you. And, Thank uh, you so hope, much. Hope it works. I appreciate the, uh, the advice. Thanks so much. Thanks for your call, Linda. We need to take a break on Creature Comforts. Today, we're taking your pet questions. We're also talking to George Phillips, paleontology curator for the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. So if you have some fossil-related questions or a question about your pet, you can call in. The phone lines are open. The number is 1-877-MPB-RING. Our phone number is 1-877-672-7464, or you can email the show at animals at mpbonline.org. We'll be back with more after this. Support for MPB comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education, offering hybrid doctorates, K-12 leadership, higher education, and math education. Combine online and face-to-face courses to graduate in three years. More information at education.olemiss.edu. I'm Jeremy Hobson. A new documentary tells the story of a father and his son, Owen, who has autism. They learn to communicate through Disney films. I say to him first, I say in Gilbert's voice, Owen, Owen, how does it feel? To be you. And what do you say? Not good, because I don't have any friends. That's next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Dr. Troy Major is veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. And our guest today, paleontology curator for the museum, George Phillips. So we're talking fossils and pets this morning. We've got some open phone lines if you'd like to join in at one eight seven seven mpb ring Our phone number is one 672 I send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Got some calls on the line, but first, George, uh, we mentioned in the opener uh, that uh, you've been working in the field a lot with some uh, folks from Brooklyn College in New York. What does the Big Apple? Uh, what does uh, Mississippi have to offer folks in the Big Apple? Well, uh, you say working. There's a lot of folks out there that love fossils and love paleontology. They like to collect fossils. They would consider I get paid to play. <laughs> uh, but it is. A, it can be a lot of work. Uh, but it, I do have a lot of fun when I do it. And I surely have fun with the group from Brooklyn College in New York. 
they are funded by the American Museum of Natural History. It's a joint project between the college. Uh, Matt Garb is the leader of this uh, working group, this research team, as it were. And they're funded by uh, the American Museum of Natural History, and uh, the leader of the project is Dr. Neil Landman there at the museum. And I collaborate them when they come to the South looking for this thing that uh, some of your listeners have probably heard about, but it's still probably kind of vague to them exactly what it is. It's called the KPG Boundary, formerly known as the KT Boundary. Uh, The name change only because our understanding or our concept of the time periods has changed. So K just refers to the German word for Cretaceous, hyphen PG, KPG, PG standing for the Paleogene, or the succeeding period after the Cretaceous. It used to be the tertiary, hence KT. Anyway, um, the search for this boundary has been a very popular pursuit by paleontologists all over the world. Um, Over 350 sites as of 2010 have been found, but it's, it's essentially a... A, uh, a separation between sediments in the geologic record, uh, sediments or rocks, sometimes they've turned to stone, where you get an abrupt change in the lower or Cretaceous age beds and a, uh, the uh, superseding or uh, superjacent upper beds that are younger that belong to the Paleogene. And there's a very stark transition, a very marked transition and the nature of those sediments. I'm providing a picture here to the group in the uh, the room, and the folks that um, monitor the museum's Facebook page will see this tomorrow morning. This is from a landfill in Houston, Mississippi, and they can see an abrupt trans- transition from the limey chalk in the bottom, and here's a close-up over here, and the uh, very red sands. Now, these sands weren't originally red. They've weathered to that red color, minerals, uh, oxidizing because of oxygen in the atmosphere after this uh, such stuff is dug up um, have turned these minerals this red color they're originally much darker but nevertheless there's a great textural change between these two sediments and this time this point in time as it were is very important because that's when dinosaurs and many other organisms on the earth became extinct 66 million years ago so uh, <clears throat> scientists are trying to find examples of the boundary and then trying to figure out what happened to cause such a stark uh, difference in, in the sediment? Absolutely. Um, I've only started in this investigation as of the last uh, five or six years and uh, heard about what the, um, the Brooklyn College and AMNH Working Group was doing. Uh, this is a photo of them at this uh, landfill near Houston, Mississippi. And uh, I identified the boundary, or I, can, I was able to recognize it. Uh, I knew very little bit about it at the time, but it's obviously you can recognize that there's some uh, drastic physical difference there uh, and mm-hmm. color difference. Um, but I was not equipped to adequately study it, to understand it. We're not equipped in the lab at the, um, at the museum to study it. We don't have the expertise. Um, but nevertheless, uh, that's our group at the same location, uh, and here we have a close-up yet again of that transition from chalk to uh, sand. And since this is also a pet show, this is on one occasion where one of our uh, stalkers, usually there's a dog around the landfill. This time it was a cat. And everywhere we tried to take a picture, the cat would uh, rest right on top of the KPG boundary. <laughs> I have multiple photos um, and even in the process of taking video of the KPG boundary and some of its features, some of the details, 
uh, all my videos, the camera will occasionally move as I start talking. It will jostle because the cat is rubbing in between my <laughs> legs and arms as I'm squatted on the ground. But, of course, I had to take the cat home. Uh, we didn't take him home on the first trip. But uh, three trips later, I decided that we got to take this cat home. And, of course, we named him KT. All right. <laughs> cool. So is there, uh, I guess, you know, the idea of uh, one of the theories is that uh, meteors killed the dinosaurs. And so, I mean, is that a plausible theory? And again, is that part of why all this is going on to better understand what that event was? That's the idea. The, the evidence came in uh, bits and pieces uh, over time. Uh, a father and son team and some of their colleagues, uh, the Alvarez uh, father and son team, Walter and Luis Alvarez, in 1980, published their work in finding this uh, super concentration, uh, super concentration in the sense that this particular um, mineral or uh, element, rather, uh, and its companion elements, the element is called iridium, and it's a type, of, a type of platinum. It's in the platinum group of metals. And there are other platinum-related metals, but primarily iridium is found in high concentrations at this boundary, and it's very rare in the Earth's crust, extremely rare. Um, and then there were various succession of other discoveries uh, in 1990, uh, a geologist doing some uh, geophysical mapping of the Yucatan Peninsula found some gravity anomalies and other anomalies and eventually discovered uh, a crater overlapping the Yucatan Peninsula and sticking out in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, and so, so we had evidence of an impact in the iridium layers because we know that meteorites our very particular group of meteorites called the chondrites are rich in iridium. So there's a lot of things flying around in space that are rich in iridium. Uh, but as Earth was growing, of course, Earth is a result of accumulation of a lot of meteoroids and asteroids. But all that iridium goes deep down inside the Earth. And so there's very little at the crust. Um, but eventually, uh, uh, one thing led to another, and they started publishing on all of these sites that were yielding these concentrations of iridium and studying the extinction across this boundary. And uh, here we are just uh, in the last decade doing research in Mississippi and chasing this very same boundary. From the, a landfill in Houston to a creek bed outside of Ripley, Mississippi, and now most recently in Kemper County, Mississippi. All right. So we have three of those 350 worldwide sites. Three of them are in Mississippi. As of 2010, I forget what the count is now. And we're adding those sites here in Mississippi, additional sites in Alabama and in Arkansas. But uh, as George mentioned, some photos will be posted on the uh, museum's Facebook page tomorrow. And if you see the photo, it, as George says, it's quite striking, uh, the picture of the landfill there. You can definitely see uh, where that boundary line is. So uh, it's uh, sometimes some of these things are a little bit hard to visualize. But like I say, this one, uh, this is really fairly obvious as to where uh, where the boundary line is. Let's uh, head to the phones with some phone calls. We're going to start uh, with Stacy, who's called in this morning. Good morning, Stacy. Hi. Can you hear me okay? Sure. Go ahead. Okay. Um, I have a question. Um, I recently, in the last six months, started traveling for work a lot. Monday through Friday, I'm away from home. And I have an eight-year-old Rottweiler Doberman. That's one of them. But he's the one with the issue at hand. And every time I get ready to leave, he's decided he's going to snarl and growl and lift his lips. I mean, he's never even opened his mouth to bite. But it's obviously very distressing for him. And he's cared for by my mom when I'm gone, which he was raised, you know, with her as well. But every time I come home now, he he, he does something, you know, like he's 
not really self-mutilating, but for example, he'll asphyxiate on like a certain spot on his body, whether it's his hip or a front paw, and he'll just chew and chew and chew and chew. I mean, he chewed a hole in his leg one day. I had to rush him to the ER. Um, my mom says after I leave, he's perfectly fine. It's right before I leave, and then, of course, after I get home. Another time, he just got sick for no reason after I returned. Well, he was acting like he was sick, breathing really hard, crazy stuff. So I take him again to the ER, and he just had a simple bellyache. <laughs> I know it's far-fetched, but I'm beginning to believe that he is pretending that he's sick and upset when I get back because he's angry and obviously distressed. And I don't know what, you know, I have a regular vet, and my vet you know, kind of old school, old fashioned, he'll be all right, he'll get over it. Um, do you is think there anything I can do to make it easier when, you know, he's not, he's not used to it? Because, I mean, I've always traveled for work, but not as extensively. I've never been away, you know, for, you know, like an entire week at a time like I am now. Right. And he is very, in an unhealthy manner, attached to me. You know, if I go to walk all three of my dogs, I can't touch the leash of the other two or he just loses his mind. He doesn't get it. He's not aggressive at all. He just starts biting the end of his leash, jumping in circles, doing flips. I mean, this is a 100-pound dog and acts like he's lost his mind. Is he getting and, worse? Yes, okay. with age. I would seek, <clears throat> seek advice of someone who is a good animal trainer, if you have one in the area. Yeah, uh, he, he's been formally trained twice. Well, he does, I think he he does some, listen, but not in them situations. He needs some more help from that standpoint. You know, you, okay. hesita- you hesitate to uh, recommend chemical uh, therapy, but he may be a dog that, pres- you know, does respond. You need to talk to your vet about this and see what he says. But I, We I, did, I would and say- he, he didn't do well. We had him on Cetraline, I think it was Cetraline, for a short time, mm-hmm. and it, it just it really changed who he was. I mean, he, right. you know, and I don't want to do that. I don't want to change who he is. I just right. want him to stop with the unhealthy you know, hurting himself, chewing on himself, and, you know. but I, I would suggest that that would happen, starting but. out with some retraining if you can, if you can find somebody that can help you with that. Okay. Uh, if not, you may still have to uh, go with some sort of medication, but uh, good luck. And it does, we see this as an anxiety-related uh, issue, and uh, it can become worse rather than better. So good luck right. to you, and I hope it helps. Okay. That's what it's doing. Great. Thank you so much. All right, Stacy. thanks for your call. Let's get an email in here before we go to our next break. Uh, <clears throat> this says, I've read that diatomaceous earth kills fleas and other pests. If so, is it really safe to use on dogs in, and in their beds? Uh, should it be food grade since they will be ingesting some as they lick it? Also, wouldn't they be inhaling some? Is that harmful? Uh, so uh, what what can you tell us about diatomaceous earth? Some people swear by it. Uh, usually it's specially prepared. It has some ionization going on with it uh, to to be able to be more effective. Uh, basically what it does, it dehydrates the larva, uh, the flea larva, and uh, it's excellent for use in carpets and this sort of thing. I don't recommend putting it on the pet itself, uh, but you could use it on uh, bedding, this sort of thing. Okay. It probably will not hurt. For some ingestion, but you would rather they not inhale it, of course. Right. Uh, is there a good flea and tick product uh, that can be used on a dog that's allergic to fleas? There are plenty of uh, flea and tick products that are that are available. And, uh, you know, we need to be able to control our fleas. 
a lot of dogs are allergic. And uh, sometimes even just the saliva from one flea can cause a dog to have intense itching, paritis, this sort of thing. Uh, there's a whole host of uh, flea products. Some of them work better than others. There's one now that actually kills mosquitoes as well, which is a plus from the standpoint of heartworm preventive. And not as the sole heartworm preventive, but it does help. And it does. it also kills fleas and ticks. So talk to your vet about this, and uh, there are plenty of products available that can work to kill fleas. All right, and the final question here, and I think we had this uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, they're looking for something that might keep horse flies away. Good fly swatter. <laughs> uh, there are products that are used, uh, especially uh, for in the horse trade, you know, to try to repel. We usually see a peak in uh, horse flies somewhere around now. And they begin to dwindle as the summer goes on, but they're still there. So a lot of people have real problems if they have pine trees and swimming pool. It seems like they uh, really attack people as well. But there are products that can be used safely to spray on horses, for example, and some use those on their dogs. But uh, I would suspect the product I was talking about uh, from the standpoint of killing mosquitoes also would help with horse flies. Okay. We need to take another quick break. When we come back, we've got a couple calls on the line. We'll talk to Mary in Braxton and Jim in Arkansas. And we have uh, time for you to ask your question as well. Open phone lines at one eight seven seven mpb ring Our phone number is one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. We'll be back with more after this. This election year has been unpredictable, and November is still months away. But you don't have to keep up with every twist and turn. You just have to keep up with us. Listen every day. Daily at 4 on NPB Think Radio. The MPB Think Radio Tour will conclude tonight in the home of the blues, the Mississippi Delta. From 5.30 to 7 p.m., we'll be at the famous Airport Grocery in Cleveland to meet you and say thanks for your generous support this year. Refreshments will be provided. So join us tonight at 5.30 at Airport Grocery in Cleveland. Visit mpbonline.org for more details and to RSVP. We'll see you in Cleveland. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Dr. Troy Major is veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and we're visiting today with the paleontology curator at the museum, George Phillips. Looks like we've got some calls on the line, so why don't we hop right back into things. We begin in Braxton and say good morning to Mary. Hello, Mary. 
Hello. How are you folks? Doing good. What do you have for us? Well, I'd like to ask Dr. Major if there's any uh, good source of uh, over-the-counter meds for cats and dogs. For what? For what purpose? Well, well I uh, need uh, I, uh, vitamins for my cat, and I don't have a, a vehicle anymore, and I also live about 20 miles from uh, Richland and 10, 20 miles from uh, McGee, and so I... Uh, if I had an over-the-counter mail order uh, sort of thing, would yes. help. Yes, ma'am. I, I would search the uh, different sites. I, just do a query. You have a computer. You could do a query. I as, have a source, yeah. Pardon? I have a source for that. Right. I, I would query the different types of medication <laughs> that you're looking for. Now, some of these are going to re- require a prescription if they're not just over-the-counter. Uh, but you should be able to get vitamins, uh, everything from uh, omega-3 fatty acids to uh, vitamins and uh, some types of pest control, like flea control. So I would have somebody help you with that, but I believe you can find sources of that with that query for pet supplies. Is there is there any uh, medication that uh, can be taken by mouth to uh, control fleas for cats? Wow. That's a real issue with cats. Uh, You have to be careful. They're very sensitive. Uh, Some uh, people have used uh, Comfortis, which is used uh, scripted for dogs. But uh, I always try to follow the the script directions. Uh, As far as I know, uh, there's nothing that uh, is commonly used by mouth for the cats because cats are very sensitive and they can react to dog dosages and be uh, either very sick or killed. So be very careful with that. Okay. And I also have a dog question for my niece. She uh, wants to take uh, cats in a uh, a rental car, and she's wondering if there was any flea medication that she could give the dogs just before she went so that there wouldn't be any fleas in the rental car. Probably the most efficient and quick use if you had to wait until... Uh, a couple of hours beforehand would be called Capstar. Capstar? Uh, Cap, C-A-P-S-T-A-R. Given uh, usually fleas are all dead and falling off within 30 minutes. Uh, okay. it, o- it only lasts for a day uh, in general use, but uh, there are other flea medications that are quite effective. But if you had to wait until the time that you were going to use the car, I would use Capstar uh, okay. at, le- at least an hour, say, before you leave. Okay, thank you. All right, Mary, thanks for the call. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Got a uh, couple calls more here on the line. Let's go next to Jim in Arkansas. Good morning, Jim. Good morning. Hi, Jim. Go ahead. Uh, I have a cat question. I, I have an outdoor cat that's about a year and a half old, and we're in the process of moving. And unfortunately, the uh, our permanent residence is not quite ready, so we've had to move. We've already moved to a, a, a temporary sort of uh, house, and he seems to have made that transition fine, and we'll probably be moving in the next uh, six weeks or so to the permanent residence, which is um, going to be a little bit different in that it's, it's going to be a, a much larger place. We've got several acres and whatnot. So I guess my concern is, um, or my question is, how how should uh, how should we make this transition? He's moved, this will be two moves in about, you know, two two months. Right. How's the cat responding now? Okay. 
Yeah, he's done pretty good. The, and you're you're keeping him inside? No, no, he's he's still he's outside. outside. Okay. He's, he's done quite well. Well, he knows where his food is, I guess, and he knows uh, his surroundings there as well. You have to right. be careful uh, as long as you uh, try to maintain uh, the integrity of the place from the standpoint of his food and he's not spooked, generally the cat will stay close to people that he knows and everything. I have seen cats that want to go back to their original home, and right. they would leave and actually if it's and turn up, there's also you know a lot of stories about that. But uh, food is an important thing, and, and just attention to the cat, I think he should. It sounds like he's fairly stable, and uh, as long as he's not spooked for some reason, uh, I feel like you probably will transition into this new place okay. All right. I sure appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for the call, Jim. Let's go next to Gulfport. Tim has called in with a solution for the horse flies. Go ahead, Tim. About 30 years ago, uh, a colleague of mine in Florida State noticed that he was studying deer fly and horse flies and noticed that, oddly enough, they're attracted to the color blue. Hmm. Now, with the exception of Paul Bunyan's big ox, I don't think there are any naturally occurring <laughs> blue mammals. <laughs> but blue seemed to be their preferred color. And uh, what he wound up developing over time was what we call the big, big blue ball. It's a ball about the size of a, a beach ball that is coated with tanglefoot, and you suspend that uh, from a tree or whatever. And as the breeze moves it back and forth, it's attracted to the deer fly and horse flies, and they land on it and get stuck. I have literally seen hundreds of dead deer fly and horse fly on these things. So, uh, and they're commercially available. I imagine you can find them on the internet. Another option, of course, we're talking about horses, they were. But as far as people go, uh, one method I came up with was a uh, blue Dixie cup glued to a cheap baseball cap. Uh, that <laughs> okay. also works. Spray that with Tanglefoot, and you wind okay. up with a dozen of those, those uh, stuck on the cap. So that's a partial solution. You're never going to get rid of all of them. But uh, it does work. Thanks for your call. All right, Tim. <laughs> Good suggestion. Sort of like uh, modern-day flypaper, it sounds like. Uh, um, here is an email or, uh, that's uh, asking, Dr. Major, I don't know, if, did you give the name of the medicine with a flea that also works for mosquitoes uh, for dogs? Uh, it's actually a, a topical. Okay. And Vectra is the name. That's Vectra. V-E-C-T-R-A. All right. So Vectra is the med for dogs that is a flea control, but also works uh, with mosquitoes. And it also works with flies uh, as well. Okay. So it's a relatively new product. It's been out for a while, but uh, it actually will kill mosquitoes, which is remarkable. All right. So let's talk a little bit about uh, summertime and our pets. And the first thing um, is it's been so, so hot here uh, in Mississippi for the last couple of weeks. Uh, so if, what about dogs or pets in your car? Is it, is it safe at all to leave, uh, your pet under kind of any circumstance in a car when, when you go somewhere? Generally not this time of year, but, and in most cases, not at all. But, uh, I would say, uh, the problem is number one, we've seen dogs actually lock the doors. If you forget to take your key, uh, a lot of the cars and trucks will cut off after a certain period of time if you have the air conditioner on. I just don't recommend uh, leaving pets in the car this time of year. Uh, temperature can rise, as we know, quickly. Uh, there have already been cases of children that have been uh, 
you know, suffocated and overheated in cars. Mm-hmm. And uh, temperature rises quickly to probably 130, 140 degrees mm-hmm. in a car that's uh, locked up. So I would recommend not and leaving your pet alone in a car. Yeah, I mean, I know when even if you have your car parked out somewhere and you get in it, you know, how hot it is when you first get in there and think right. about, you know, a dog uh, being closed up in there for even 10, 15 minutes. And so, yeah, I think, uh, right. that's, that's a, that's good advice. Uh, now d- does the heat, uh, attract or bring out, uh, the, the ticks and the fleas? I know fleas are a year round problem. Is it, is it worse in the summertime? Because of humidity, moisture, uh, it's, it's, it is seasonal in a way. However, here in Mississippi, we have fleas and ticks year round. Mm-hmm. So, uh, flea and tick control is important. Uh, but it does seem to be worse during periods of uh, uh, heat and humidity, and especially with our outside animals, uh, fleas can proliferate just at a fantastic rate. Ticks, on the other hand, usually are spread uh, in in similar fashion, but uh, you have to locate or the tick has to get on the dog. Fleas are almost what you would call ubiquitous. They're, They're everywhere. Uh, what about some other insects uh, that uh, might uh, in, uh, hassle with pets I- I during the summertime? Bees, wasps, any kind of, I guess, I would think dogs maybe more just sort of accidental uh, encounters with, with those kind of insects. Right. We see uh, bee stings, uh, reactions. Uh, usually it's more like a hornet or some other uh, red wasp, for example. We talked about, I believe, last week about the different uh, venoms that uh, bees and wasp type uh, mm-hmm. Uh, creatures have uh, the red wasp, for example, is very toxic and causes a lot of swelling. Uh, the other thing that we see is more snake bite, obviously, this time of year. And uh, a dog tends to want to put its nose down and sniff at something, and that's when it gets uh, bitten, usually on the face, but quite often on a foot as they step through uh, underbrush or this sort of thing. So these are all things that uh, are more of a hazard during the summer summer months than any other time. Um, and I guess <clears throat> on both of those situations, a bee sting or a, a snake bite, that's something that you want to go to the vet immediately. Right. As a simple first aid with the bee sting usually would be Benadryl. Uh, and uh, you can get the dosage from your veterinarian. I can say usually one to two milligrams per pound for a grown adult dog uh, would help. On the other hand, uh, a snake bite needs to be looked at uh, definitely because we never know exactly how much venom a snake will inject. Uh, some are, they call them dry bites. I'm not sure that I've ever seen what I'd call a dry bite, but uh, it's enough to scare you to death if a snake bit you. And uh, we've already seen several uh, snake bites this year, uh, this summer. So it, it is one thing that needs to be uh, attended to because you don't know exactly the severity at the moment of how this is going to go. We need to take one final break this hour. When we get back, we'll wrap things up by, among other things, talking to Joe in Oxford. Uh, and we'll also talk a little bit more with uh, George Phillips about uh, the, um, what is it, the K... K... Help me out, George. The KPG boundary. Yeah, that's it. All right. Uh, we'll be back to wrap up Creature Comforts right after this.
It's been an unpredictable election year, and November is still months away. You do not have to take time to keep up with every little twist and turn. You just have to keep up with us. Listen every day. Daily at 4 on NPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Join me each Thursday for Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. Each week we talk with you about the health issues that are facing your children. From acne to concussions to diaper rashes and tonsils, from potty training to allergies to braces and everything in between. It's Mississippi's free weekly pediatric clinic on the radio. Listen to any of our episodes on demand through the MPB Public Radio app and online at mpbonline.org. Southern Remedy Kids and Teens, this morning at 11 on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and our guest today, the paleontology curator for the uh, museum, uh, George Phillips. So, George, we've been talking today about the KPG boundary, and that's a, it's a layer in the, in the sediment record that really differentiates what's below it uh, to what's above it. And we were speculating that the, the theory that, and also you said it was around the time that the dinosaurs were extinct and that sort of thing, went in ex- extinct. Uh, and we're speculating that there might be... Um, um, meteors or, or something that, that helped this along. Is there any kind of record? Do we see any kind of fossils or things that show signs of incineration or mass fires, that sort of thing? No, most of the evidence is um, in the form of what happened many hundreds, thousands, or even millions of years afterwards. Uh, in many places, there's been considerable erosion at the boundary. Um, you know, remember the sedimentary record that preserves fossils, most fossils, is very scrappy. The fact that we've got anything buried and we can study it to begin with is rather unusual. Um, The boundary uh, records uh, the same thing uh, where there's a good boundary, like this boundary and the other places we've studied it. It's recording uh, this event, but it's not recording it in the same way at all locations. There's always a difference. But there are many, many similarities. Now, we've not found the iridium layer in uh, Mississippi, but we found other evidences. There are other evidences contained in these sediments. Uh, change in the fossil assemblages across the boundary is a major one. I have an example of with that uh, with me today regarding that. But I wanted to bring your attention to a non-fossil, uh, similar to the iridium in the sense that it's not living. Uh, there are these glass beads we call uh, tectites. Uh, this is a little vial full of them. They're not glass anymore. When they were formed... Uh, They were originally a glass-like substance. Uh, They were little droplets of molten rock that were blasted from the impact site there in the Yucatan and drifted by air and, in many cases, by sea. A lot of them floated on the ocean after they landed, and the ocean later concentrated them. But they were distributed all over the, um, uh, you know, basically a half of the globe and sometimes... Uh, further away from that, you'll see there's what else other than these little beads in the in the vial? Did you I see the, the shark, shark tooth? tooth. <laughs> a tiny little shark. This is not an animal incinerated by the blast, <laughs> incidentally. He was in the sample, uh, that little tooth there. So we got a shark tooth in there with these little beads. There'll be pictures of, uh, I think, a photomicrograph. Here's what they look like in place in a chunk of the rock. 
um, and you get more idea, a better idea of the structure of these things. Now, these are uh, altered from the original gra- glass. Uh, only in special situations and close to the impact site do you actually get the original glass structure of these molten droplets that essentially froze when they became airborne uh, or, uh, you know, um, I guess froze is, is, the, is the term I'm looking for. Uh, and they often froze in this uh, spherical shape, but then you'll see there's some egg shapes in there. Some of them are oblong. Essentially, again, um, melted droplets of the rock from that location distributed throughout uh, pretty much half of the globe. And we found these at most most of the sites. I think something like 9 out of 10 of the sites uh, at locations in Mississippi and Alabama and Arkansas. They're very unstable. The glass that they originally made out of is very thin and it doesn't preserve and they alter to various types of clay and here's some close-ups of what the uh, the altered glass looks like it turns to this clay um, over time but again we know that uh, they are originally made of glass because we found um, found them the with the same structure made of glass closer to the impact site and in areas where they're preserved the same way and they're very different from all the other substances we find in these sediments and they have uh, distinctive chemical signatures that we associate with um, decomposed or altered glass. Uh, but those, the, this, this material didn't actually incinerate the uh, fossils, organi- the organisms that, it, that they're buried with. But we do find them uh, what we call worked in together, deposited together by currents. Um, we find other evidences, but that was probably one of the most prominent ones, are these little tectites, these glass beads. All right. Now, boundary. I guess around the real site in the Yucatan, things were incinerated. Oh, yeah. Not this far away. Yeah. Uh, not this far away. Yeah. Uh, there were other effects. There were global effects many centuries after the blast. But within about a 100-mile radius, there were things that were incinerated. And I guess if folks wanted to know more, just the search K-PG boundary, and then you can find some more information. Very fascinating stuff uh, on the web. Let's get one final question in before the last uh, before the show ends, and it comes from Joe in Oxford. Good morning, Joe. Morning, sir. How are you? Good. What do you have for us? Uh, I was trying to call you. I was talking about dogs in the car. I uh, I leave my car running and run into the store with the AC on full blast to keep my dog comfortable and. Uh, he's never had any problem. The car stays around 70 degrees inside, maybe even cooler than that. I was saying if that's okay, short period of time, five minutes, no more than 10, uh, as long as you keep it cool, is my question. You know, certainly that can work. Uh, and uh, you hate to say, no, you can't do that. And you can, certainly. Uh, there are some of the more... Uh, I don't know how new your car is, maybe brand new, but there are some of them will literally cut off after a certain period of time. Uh, so I would li- limit those times to very short periods, five to ten minutes, as you said. But that's you know certainly acceptable if you're very conscientious with that. Thank yes, you for your, thank you for your call. All right, jo- Joe, we appreciate that. We got about a minute left, um, so. Uh, Dr. Major, again, we've talked about this in the past. Uh, pets, uh, especially dog. well, I don't know many cats that love water, but dogs certainly love water. Uh, but uh, you said even though maybe at the lake or something, monitor that because they can wear out having so much fun. Sure. Uh, you know, at the reservoir or other lake, uh, if you're playing frisbee or ball or stick, dogs going in and out of the water, they can still overheat. And uh, it's very important to monitor and be sure that they uh, don't, even though water is readily available. Uh, dogs especially can still overheat. I always use the example, though, of cats. 
you know, you don't see a cat running down the street when 110 degree uh, temperature <laughs> there in the shade somewhere, whereas sometimes dogs, uh, for one reason or another, are out running loose. So uh, be careful. Give your pets plenty of shelter uh, from the sun and plenty of water. Make sure that they've got their water. You know, I think you're right. You know, the typical southern scene, uh, sub- summertime scene, your dog's out in the backyard running around with the kids in the in the kiddie pool, jumping around in the water. Meanwhile, the cat is uh, in the house, in the air conditioner, <laughs> on the ledge, uh, probably taking a nap. So Watching uh, the dog saying, you crazy <laughs> fool. <laughs> that is going to wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi, Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Funding is provided in part by the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science Foundation and contributions from listeners like you. If you need to hear today's show or a previous show, you can find it at mpbonline.org slash creature comforts. So for Libby Hartfield, Dr. Troy Major, and our guest George Phillips, I'm Kevin Farrell. Uh, up next at 10, it's MPB Season Pass with Jay White and Sam Wells. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts. It's heard only on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.